Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Well, hello, and thanks for joining me today. We are taking the month of December and the Advent season to specifically illuminate some Hebrew terms and concepts that enlarge and enhance our Christian understanding of the first coming of our Messiah, Savior, Jesus Christ, or as Jewish believers might say, Yeshua HaMashiach, meaning Jesus the Messiah. Friends, our term today, Messiah, is a somewhat tricky term and requires a bit of unpacking so we not only use it correctly, but understand its first-century implications and first-century expectations from the Jews of Jesus' day and, believe it or not, even from Jesus' own disciples. First of all, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the first century Greco-Roman world, there was already in place a long history in Judaism of what has come to be known as the dual Messiah theory. The dual Messiah theory advanced that the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, pictured both a suffering servant Messiah and a triumphant or conquering king Messiah. The suffering servant Messiah would come in the spirit of and with the ethical voice of the prophets. In other words, humiliated and scorned by his contemporaries, while his mission would be to challenge the hearts and minds of the Jews regarding their sin, and by extension, the sin of the whole world. The triumphant or conquering king Messiah was envisioned as a kind of idealized descendant of King David, would be exalted to a throne and rule, and one who would restore Israel to their longed-for prominence and glory in the world. The suffering servant Messiah is best portrayed in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's grand chapter, Isaiah 53. In actuality, the passage should be read beginning at Isaiah 52, verse 13, four verses before chapter 53 begins. In some Bibles, there's even a heading over chapter 52, verse 13, that says, The Suffering and Glory of the Servant. 
Now, just listen to a couple of verses that, for me, sent chills up my spine every time I read them. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and peace in this context is the peace of reconciliation. The punishment that brought us reconciliation with God was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I got to tell you, friends, traditional Jewish people and even rabbis today clearly object to this portion of the Hebrew Scriptures being referred to as speaking about Jesus. In fact, Isaiah 53 and many other messianic passages have been intentionally withdrawn from the reading cycle in synagogue life and in the cycle of readings for this very reason. Another familiar portion of the Hebrew Scriptures that paints a powerful picture of crucifixion long before crucifixion was even invented and practiced, is Psalm 22. This is considered a messianic psalm due to its language that appears to be describing details of being crucified. In addition, the psalm begins with a statement that Jesus quoted while on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Well, it should, friends. Two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Mark, record Jesus blurting this out. Matthew 27:46 and Mark 15:33. In traditional Hebrew thought, quoting the opening line or lines of a text indicated that one was referring to the entire portion. In this case, the whole of Psalm 22. Now, I'd just like to quote a few verses from Psalm 22, and I'd like you to think about what is pictured here, okay? This would be verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. Now, a potsherd is a broken piece of pottery or ceramic that one might find in an archaeological dig. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Does this sound familiar, friends? Of course it does. You've heard this before during Passion Week and especially on Good Friday. A short portion of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, will suffice here. These are a few verses between verse 32 and 44. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. Now, friends, this conquering king motif finds its roots in the prophet Zechariah, who in Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And just one chapter earlier, God declares through Zechariah this promise. In Zechariah chapter 8, 1 through 3, we hear, The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Friends, I know that rings a bell with you. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, often referred to as the triumphal entry chapter, this is what we read. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place, now listen, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Interestingly enough, friends, when we carefully examine these two Zechariah texts, we must first arrive at the conclusion that who was coming to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people was the Lord God. 
And the second conclusion we must arrive at, as crazy as it sounds, is that Jesus had to be God. Okay, friends, keep your seatbelts on here, because we will see that this is precisely what the Jewish religious leaders believed Jesus was claiming for himself. And we'll take a look at a few New Testament scripture passages that bring this to light. But first, I want us to put on first century sandals and imagine ourselves there in Israel, also under the iron thumb and the rule of the Roman Empire. Of course, the Roman captivity was nothing like the Egyptian, the Babylonian, or the Assyrian captivity, but it still was someone else in charge, someone else calling the shots. While the Jews enjoyed a measure of freedom, they still cried out for a deliverer, a rescuer, a Messiah, if you will, who would come and restore Israel's rightful place on top and living as a self-governing nation. Now, friends, if you were there and living under these first century conditions, which Messiah would you be clamoring for? Would you be salivating for the suffering servant or the conquering king? I don't even have to answer that question for you, do I? But let's put the scriptures to the test and see just what emerges in the minds of Jesus' own disciples according to the New Testament records, okay? Let's begin before Jesus' resurrection. Let's begin during his earthly ministry of three years. Let's begin with that famous conversation between Jesus and Peter when Jesus asked his disciples, just who do people say that I am, by the way? This record appears in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The disciples replied to Jesus' question with the following answers. Well, some say you are John the Baptist, others say you are Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked, but what about you, disciples? Who do you guys say that I am? Are you ready? Here it comes. That famous and glorious reply by Peter, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow! Jesus is tickled pink and declares a blessing over Peter. Impressive, right? Shortly after that, Matthew then records this statement. Then he, Jesus, ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? This word ordered in the Greek means to charge, to commission, instruct, admonish, even give an explicit command. Are you kidding me? You mean we can't tell other people that you are the Messiah? Come on, Jesus, we've been waiting for you for umpteen generations, and now you want us to keep quiet about you? Okay, now the scene shifts. The very next verse that occurs right after Jesus said that is this. Listen carefully. This is Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, 
right after Peter made his exquisite declaration, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What? What kind of Messiah are you anyway? I can just imagine Peter mulling this over in his mind. After all, listen to what he now declares literally minutes after that wonderful messianic proclamation. Matthew tells us in verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Amazing. Jesus' blessing just a few minutes ago now turns to a rebuke of Peter. Jesus replies to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What? You just praised me in front of all my friends, and now you are scolding me? What kind of Messiah are you anyway? And friends, this is the quintessential question, isn't it? What kind of Messiah are you, Jesus? Aren't you the triumphant, conquering King Messiah we've been waiting for? Aren't you going to turn the tables on Rome and elevate us back to where we belong, on top? Are you going to dethrone Rome and put us back in charge? Evidently, no. You see, friends, Jesus was attempting to correct his own disciples' warped view of his messianic mission. And while they were expecting a militant warrior messiah, Jesus could not allow them to go out and proclaim he is the messiah. Now, friends, let's look at a post-resurrection account. Let's take a look at Luke 24 and that well-known account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The whole story is found in Luke 24, verse 13, to the end of the chapter. But let's just capture a few key statements by these two disciples. Luke informs us that this walk occurs around the afternoon after Jesus rises from the dead. While they were discussing the tragic events of the last few days, you know, the crucifixion, Jesus himself appears and begins talking with them. But he cleverly keeps them from recognizing him because he has to get a key truth across to them. So Jesus invites himself into the conversation by asking, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Well, they're shocked that someone in Jerusalem wouldn't know what incredible events just took place. Well, he urges them to continue informing him of the weekend's events. Listen to their words. Listen carefully. About Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and all our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that? 
Can you feel that? Can you sense that total hopelessness in their voices? Hopelessness about what? Friends, I hope I'm not going to sound too sacrilegious here, but let's bring this idea forward into our time and put this in the context of a superhero movie. Picture these downcast and despondent disciples blurting out to Jesus, We were expecting a hero, but he didn't show up. We shined the bat signal, but he never came. Now what are we supposed to do? You see, friends, the hero, Jesus, did show up. But the disciples' skewed view of their Messiah prevented them from seeing the real Jesus, the real Messiah, the Messiah that was to first suffer and die. The hero's mission was to first establish a spiritual kingdom and not an earthly kingdom as the disciples had supposed. Now, as promised, let's take a quick look at how the Jewish religious leaders responded to Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. In other words, his claim to be God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, John paints a picture of what took place after Jesus heals a crippled man on the Sabbath. In John 5.16, we read that the Jewish leaders began persecuting Jesus. In defending himself, Jesus said, My father is always at work to this day, and I too am working. Then John adds for his audience, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Friends, during this month of preparing ourselves to celebrate the first coming of Jesus the Messiah, our Savior from our sins, let's remember that Almighty God came to us that glorious night in Bethlehem and was born in a manger. Let's try this year to graduate from seeing Jesus as the manger Jesus to seeing him as the Messiah Jesus the Jesus who came into our broken world for the express purpose of dying on the cross for our sins. Maybe this year our Christmas greeting should be Merry Messiahmas. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Might open some doors to a neat conversation. Maybe we'll help people's misinterpretations to be changed a little bit. Friends, As we near the close of today's program, I want to remind you that as a local pastor here in the Valley, although I'm semi-retired, I'm active in several disciple-making communities where we engage in a deeper study of God's Word so as to transform the way we think and act. But I'd also be honored to pray for you. Perhaps this season of joy is difficult for you and you need God's help. The broadcast will close with an email address where I can be contacted. Please listen for it. This email is also where you may contact me to learn how you can help support this radio program. And for that, I would be very grateful. Thanks for listening. And always remember that Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom. Friends, If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him 
at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 